and welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, for coming back to the show. Really do appreciate uh, these regular listeners who are supporting this show and supporting Counterpunch. It's greatly appreciated. If you're just finding the show, welcome. I hope you enjoy today's episode and maybe go back and listen to the old ones in the archive and do consider uh, supporting Counterpunch. I really do think it's an important uh, media project. Alternative media is something that really needs to be defended, particularly in the current climate. Counterpunch is a great way to be part of the solution rather than giving your money to, you know, Fox News or the corporate advertisers on MSNBC or whatever it might be. Throw your money to an alternative media outlet that actually has courage, that actually is publishing the kind of content that we want to see. And so uh, if you agree that Counterpunch is important, please consider getting a subscription to the print magazine, Inc., Paper, what else do you need? Anyway, uh, please do consider doing that. And if you'd like to support my work personally, you can find my Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Eric Drates. There are lots more content there, podcasts, articles, interviews, commentaries, a whole lot more. Anyway, all that done, out of the way. Let me turn to my guest. Uh, Leslie Ann Brown is on the line with me. I'm, I'm a huge fan of hers, number one, and I'm a huge fan of her recent work and uh, her new book we're going to talk a lot about today. Uh, Leslie Ann Brown is a Brooklyn-born writer, educator, and activist who currently lives in Copenhagen, Denmark. Her parents are from Trinidad and Tobago, which is going to figure quite centrally in some of our conversation Mm -hmm. today. Uh, She studied writing and literature at the New School for Social Research and has worked as a freelancer for Vibe, for The Source, and for other publications. Her very important blog, Black Girl on Mars, you definitely should check out. She's also the founder of Bandit Queen Press, Leslie Ann Brown. Welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Thank you so much, Eric. And I'm a fan of yours as well. It's great to be here and to talk to you. Excellent. Oh, thank you so much. Really appreciate that. And we'll pretend that we didn't stage that before we started recording uh, and, and plan that to make me feel better about myself. We did uh, not plan that. <laughs> Um, So the book, uh, I already mentioned it, although I didn't mention the title, Decolonial Daughter, Letters from a Black Woman to Her European Son. It's, I mean, I know I say this every time we talk to an author and, and have a book on the show, but boy, is this a book that you have to get a copy of. This is such an important, such a touching and moving book, I have to say. So I will begin with the odious, uh, generic question that I hate to ask, but I'm going to ask. So what drove you to write this book, Leslie Ann? But, but, but really, uh, what was the genesis of the book? Because this is not your standard memoir style book. This is kind of unique both in terms of its uh, narrative structure, narrative form, narrative devices, but also stylistically. So tell us a little bit about uh, what what made you write this book? I mean, are we talking about a single experience that crystallized a lot of things for you? Are we talking about a slow evolution, a collective sort of process of evaluating memory and experience? Talk to me a little bit about how this book came to be. Oh, okay, great question. I mean, I think every writer appreciates that question. (laughs) So um, when I was a child, um, I grew up in a household that had a lot of, um, there was a lot of anger and um, a lot of abuse going on. And I didn't didn't understand it. I didn't understand why my dad seemed to be so angry, um, why my mom didn't protect us. I didn't understand why we were always short of money. Uh, There were many things I didn't understand. And as a little girl, I made a pact with myself that I wanted to understand. 
Like, I want to understand what's going on. And that sort of, that, that's where it all began, my interest in history, not just um, uh, on a general, uh, like, world history, but in a particular history, Trinidad, and my familial history. Um, and uh, I always knew I wanted to write, and I would always kind of, like, write different variations and different perspectives. And then um, I had a conversation a few years ago with uh, my friend, uh, the writer, Dimitri Legere, who wrote uh, God Loves Haiti. And he told me, he was just like, um, he's like, Leslie, you know what? You should write a book of letters to your son. And I thought about it, and I thought, okay, you know, we, I, I know the genre, and, I, you know, there, there, there are quite a few books out in the market, a book of letters, et cetera. And I was like, okay, that, that's a, a tradition, definitely, that I, I could pursue. And then I guess uh, what really happened was uh, <laughs> my son, um, I had written an article about why I moved to Denmark, and I wrote it in the framework as a letter to my son. And um, one day I asked him, I said, so uh, did you read my article? And he was like, oh, Mom, no, I haven't read it. Just, just write me a book, and, and I'll read it, you know? So <laughs> that's when it really came together for me. I was like, okay, I'll write you a book, <laughs> and I did. Well, he, he laid down the gauntlet and you rose to the challenge, I guess. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, so it is interesting uh, that the structure of the book and the and the form and the mixing of, of, you know, pretty different media, I mean, prose and poetry and traditional songs, folk songs, things like that. I mean, this is, I, I don't want to say it's groundbreaking, that might be a bit grandiose, but it's certainly, <laughs> it certainly is innovative and I think it really plays quite well in the book. So talk a little bit about the mixing of the different narrative forms and the mixing of these different genres in the book and how you think that plays into the overall narrative and the overall story that you're trying to tell? Yeah, I think that um, for me, it's funny, I had a friend who read the book and he said, Leslie, you know, you're, you're a, um, a musician, you know, it's a, this is not like a book, this is like a composition, a musical composition. And I grew up, uh, my father was a musician and I have, and I, I grew up listening to like all sorts of music my whole life. I had a record player in my room and I'd get all my dad's old jazz records and um you know, so, you know, I, I have a very musical background. I don't play an instrument myself, but I mean, in the, you know, you can you probably hear it in my poetry and how, you know, the rhythm and the cadence, etc. So I think like that has a has influenced me a lot. And also, um, you know, I, I really particularly cherish that aspect of um, black culture where it's like, you know, mixing things, <laughs> You know, or, or Creole, you could say, you know, like a, a Creolization of, um, of forms. And I, I think that's, I mean, you know, I think it's very important to, um, you know, to, to mix things, you know. <laughs> so, and also, I always resist being called a poet or a journalist or, um, you know, although I write these things, I, I write in those uh, different genres and many different genres because I see myself as a writer. And, and when I say that as me, I see myself as using all forms um, as I see fit. So those are the two things that come to mind when you uh, pose that question. Yeah, and I, I couldn't help, uh, you know, playing on my own uh, academic background in, in art and art history and also in writing and thinking about artists like Joseph Cornell and other black artists who mm. did things like assemblages and, 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 and pulling things together, mixed media, things right. like that. It did, it definitely felt like it was playing on that tradition, which yeah. it's itself kind of has a sort of a metaphorical meaning since the book is really about traditions. Right, exactly. Absolutely. 
So um, I guess that kind of segues into the next uh, the, the next question I want to ask you, which relates to that issue of traditions. And specifically in the book, you, you speak a lot and, and rather explicitly about lineage and about ancestry. And in fact, oh. if I remember correctly, I'd, I'd have to go back and look, but I, I believe you dedicated the book to the ancestors. Yeah, that's right. Mistaken. I did. Mm-hmm. Right. So so even from the very, very be- even before you get to page one, you you instantly have this sort of connection, this idea that what you're about to read is connected to the generations that came before, but you use that in an interesting way. You're not just doing it to tell a history. You're doing it to talk about things like gender and race and land ownership and and, uh, power and struggle and uh, oppression and all of these different very kind of heady concepts. So talk to me a little bit about how you use and weave in lineage and ancestry to talk about these broader issues. Yeah, I think that, you know, uh, for me, I think one of the the tragedies of what we call modernity is that it has made us um, feel that we come from nothing um, and that we are nothing. This is also a very important uh, aspect of capitalism, otherwise it wouldn't work. So um, meaning that um, we are taught that um, some people are important and some people, other people's lineages are, are important, not yours. And it's quite unfortunate, like, um, I remember once I uh, was presenting a poem, and I had a Danish person in the audience tell me, oh, but um, my, my, my ancestors aren't as exciting as your ancestors, you know, she was relating to the fact that, you know, my ancestry is mixed. And I really had to challenge her about that, because... Again, I really think it's a very foundational tenet of what's going on in, in, in our culture today, that we really don't feel, unless we're very wealthy or we're in the royal family, or a lot of us don't feel like we have that permission to actually honor the people who came before us. And in every tradition, globally, before the dawning of so-called modernity, we honored our ancestors. <laughs> You know, so for me, and this is something I was born asking, I don't know where it comes from, but I always ask my my mother about her mother. I always ask my grandmother about her mother. I have, you know, every time, you know, I got around a family member when I was a child, they'll be like, oh God, there she goes again, asking all these questions. And I honestly can't tell you where it comes from, but I just know in my bones that our lineages, and I don't think anyone's lineage is any more important than the other. (laughs) I think we all need to honor our ancestors because there is something in our lineage, there's a lot in our lineage that has so much to teach us about why we're here. Indeed, and and one of the things about ancestry and and, and the ancestors, particularly in a lot of the African traditions, is that the ancestors are not some are, are not simply figures that have receded into some distant past. That the ancestors are quite literally with you all the time, and that you can draw on their power and you can draw on you know their their spiritual uh, I don't know resonance or whatever you want to call Absolutely. it. And, and I think yes. yeah, and and I think that that comes through in the book as well. Well, because you're not chronicling the history of your ancestors, you're right. quite you're quite literally. Well, I don't want to say literally, but you're figuratively bringing them to life. Right. Yes. Exactly. And you know, for me, writing is a type of sorcery. You know, it's like it is a sort of a, you know, writers have the ability to you know really draw the readers into other worlds. <laughs> 
So um, you, as a writer, you know, you can, you, there's, a, there's that power available to you to actually, like, add, you know, life to things that are considered, you know, quote, unquote, dead, you know. So, um, you know, and for me, I think what's also really important for my doing this is because I didn't, I wasn't born in a tradition. Like, I don't know. I mean, there are many people who, um, like here in Trinidad, for example, who, you know, know a lot about, um, you know, African traditions. There's some African traditions that are practiced here that are, have remained unbroken since, you know, the slaves landed here. I mean, I've had access to none of that because my family was very colonized and was very Catholic, you know. Uh, I didn't know. I mean, my, I have a great grandmother that was First Nation. I don't know anything about that. I mean, so, you know, I, I'm truly, a, a, you know, a, a woman who ha, who's, um, you know, I, I have to fight to find these things out. And I'm very much still uh, in kindergarten when it comes to accessing this knowledge. So whatever I have in the book is really just what I, the best I could do with uh, diving into myself, into my DNA and my imagination. Another important theme running through the book, and it's obvious from the subject of the book, is motherhood and maybe more broadly womanhood. But mm. it's, it's, it's not just about being a mother or being a woman. There's also a lot about the symbolic meaning of what a mother represents and what a woman represents. And if and one of those th- one of those themes among many, I think, is memory. Right, that mother mm. that, that mothers really represent that connection that you were just talking about and memory. And I think an interesting uh, aspect of the book is your ta- when you talk about your grandmother and mm. your grandmother having lost her memory to Alzheimer's, mm. having that kind of, again, that sort of metaphorical meaning. Can you draw that out for us a little bit about, uh, about motherhood and womanhood and how it connects mm. to memory? Yeah, I think that um, w- one of the things that ha- that that oils this machine that we see that is in full force, all the different aspects of it, is uh, trauma. And I think that a lot of people who are, um, I think everyone is traumatized. I don't think there's anyone that kind of um, hasn't experienced trauma in in our culture. But particularly for women uh, in a patriarchal society, there's a, a violence that is. Um, you know, there's a particular type of violence that we have to get used to, you know, that's socialized, that, that's taught to us even by our own mothers or by, our, you know, by our sisters, um, it's particularly as women of color, you know what I mean? We, it was legal to rape us for hundreds of years, you know? There's, a, there, there's something that, um, you know, so there's a lot of trauma r- running through our very existence. And, you know, part of the way of dealing with trauma, especially when there's no outlet, to, um, to heal from it um, is suppressing your memory, you know? Um, and, you know, for my grandmother, you know, there are certain things that I, I write about in the book um, about like, her own lineage and, and, you know, some things that I sort of had to imagine because, um, you know, I couldn't get her to say it, although, you know, the, the evidence was there. Like, she was this evidence of this story that I kept on asking her about. She could never bring herself to utter it. And I really think... I don't want to, I'm not making the um, oversimplified um, verdict that Alzheimer's is just someone suppressing their memory. I'm not saying that at all, but I'm just, you know, for me, it's just so symbolic that, you know, here was a woman who just really was not uh, wanting to confront um, her, her very origins, like where she came from, you know, because that was so 
very possibly are fraught with trauma. And here she is in the end, you know, um, not able to access her memory at all. So I always thought that was really um, interesting, you know. Um, it was just a very poetic uh, way, to, you know, for me. I mean, it was there, you know. I mean, life is better than uh, fiction, you know. I think that's very well said. And the other part of this sort of motherly symbology, I guess, for lack of a better word, I want to ask you about mothers as protectors, because mm. the, 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 the figure of a protector is almost universal as a symbol for mothers throughout, uh, certainly throughout indigenous cultures all over the world. Uh, mm. I'm thinking especially of Native American cultures where the, the women are the water protectors. That mm. is, that plays quite centrally in the entire struggle over the uh, Dakota Access pipeline, right. the Keystone pipeline, that those, uh, those, those native peoples were not simply there to protect the water on the physical level, they were mm. also there doing kind of their sacred duty. And in, in reading your book, this, the, the mother as protector really does come through quite strikingly as well. And in, in the context of what we were just talking about, the mother as the protector of memory, as the protector of ancestry, mm. as the protector of our past. Talk a little bit about mothers as protectors and how you play on that theme in this book I think that um, yeah for me I, I, I very much um, well I use this metaphor of, uh, of elephants you know um, which uh, you know I, I you know elephants are such are such beautiful animals and I and um, they just talked about you know when you look at the role of like um, of uh, the the grandmother the matriarch in in the whole elephant uh, in the group, I mean that to me was just like I was like okay that's a really beautiful metaphor for humans actually you know which is why I played a little bit about with it. oh look there's the dog <laughs> country living so um, yeah so you know for me you know in a patriarchal culture such as ours. You, for me, I really have experienced um, both. I've experienced mothers being able to protect, and I've also seen mothers not being able to protect. And I, it's a, it's a, you know, in many cultures, as you as you mentioned before, actually, the word for uh, home is synonymous with uh, like mother, and um, so it's. So this mother is a very like it's a it's really an important bond, okay? And in our patriarchal society, you see very often how that bond uh, ends up being compromised, and it can be compromised through economics. It could be uh, compromised. The whole of slavery was built around compromising motherhood. I mean, you took people's babies away. Like that's you know um, the whole immigration debate right now is being built around compromising motherhood. I mean, they're taking people, babies away from their mothers. I mean, so it's, you know, so I would say you could probably judge the health of a culture based on how well a woman is in a position to protect her children. And if you look at the news, um, when it comes to children and their safety in our culture, um, I would like to challenge everyone to just Google the statistics of, of, uh, of children who are being abused, uh, statistics of children who have gone missing. Uh, I mean, you know, statistics that have to do with the welfare of our children 
And you will see that that bond, that, that inability to protect our children is actually very compromised right now in our culture. Let's take a quick break. On the other side of the break, I want to uh, read a quick passage from the book that, that, that really struck a chord with me, and, and we'll go from there. Again, the book, Decolonial, uh, Decolonial Daughter, Letters from a Black Woman to Her European Son. Get yourself a copy of that. Matter of fact, do it while you're listening to the music, and we will be right back. You're asking what is socialism and what it really means It's equal rights for every man regardless of his strength So don't let no one fool you Joshua Listen as I tell you Joshua No man are better than none Socialism is love between man and man Socialism is love for your brothers Socialism is Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Leslie Ann Brown. Again, the book, Decolonial Daughter. Very, very important book. I really recommend it, especially for people um, to give as gifts for the, a certain somebody in your life who you think would benefit from some of these ideas, because it really does touch on so many different things. I have to I, I have to commend you, Leslie Ann, on this book, because it it's almost like an interdisciplinary work, you know, it's and in one sense, it's it's literary, it's poetic. In another sense, it's a work of historical scholarship. In another oh. sense, it's, you know, it's a it's a diary. It's also an artifact for your oh. for, for future generations. It's a lot of different things. And um, I think that that's really uh, commendable, because in fact, the book is so much more than just a book. 
Thank you. Thank you. I'm really uh, happy to hear that you appreciate it. <laughs> I wanted to quickly read a passage and I know it's, it, I believe me, I listen to podcasts. When people read passages of things on podcasts, you're like, great. Uh, but let me just quickly, let me just quickly read through one passage that, that really struck me. I had to underline it and dog ear the page, etc. So uh, this is from uh, the chapter, The Conquest of Kairi, What We Lost in Empire. And I imagine people probably know where I'm going with this. As the waves break upon the shore, and as certain as the sky is blue above their heads, our ancestors could never have known the fate that was to befall them. For even if they had previously encountered strangers from across the Atlantic, as many historical murmurs attest to, both from the continent of Africa and from Europe, certainly these encounters were never as bloody as this upcoming one would prove to be. Our ancestors cannot know their future at this moment. Instead, their bare tamarind-colored feet are buried in the coolness of the sand. They use their hands to shield their eyes from the glare of the sun as they witness the coming of their plague. They stand on this beach, naked and transfixed. What are these beasts that approach, their wings swelling with the wind? As if sensing the macabre destiny of all the variables in place, the carbot, or carrion crow, hovers above these ships of destruction. That's a really, that's a really powerful and, 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 and beautifully written passage, but there is a political context to oh. it. So can you talk to me a little bit about the symbolic meaning of this, this scene that you're setting up here? I mean, obviously we all understand it's the meeting of the uh, native people of the island with the European uh, explorers or co uh, conquerors, but there seems to be more layers to it than that. So tell me exactly how you see this passage that you wrote in the book and what the symbolic meaning of it is. Um, sure. I write, I write about another scene in the book where I'm with my, um, the father of my child who's Danish and we're sitting on a beach in, in uh, Hawaii and uh, our son is sitting between us. You know, he's about three years old and we're looking out at the water and he says, um, I wonder what it was like to see this uh, for the fir being on the ship and seeing these islands for the first time. And, and I respond, you know, you know uh, almost immediately. I wonder what it was like being on this beach and uh, seeing those ships coming for the first time. And I, I say that story because um, it's, it, it really highlights the positioning I've always had with this story. And a lot of other people, you know, of color who when you're sitting in a classroom and you and you learn about this so-called discovery of the new world, uh, Christopher Columbus, you hear the story. Um, you can't but help to think like, oh, what? was it like, <laughs> you know, for the people who were there, you know, like, what was it like for, you know, whether you're in some African village or you're indigenous Indian in the States, or, I mean, you, you know, you can just, you, you know, you can't help but put yourself in that um, position. And whereas there have been many artists who, who have, um, you know, reenacted that and, and, and positioned themselves in this positioning that I'm doing as well, I think it's just important. I mean, for me, it was very important because I really do have moments like when you just when you when you read that before when I heard you reading it, I got uh, goosebumps. I get very emotional when I think about the, the pain that my ancestors have gone through. Like I take that very personally. For me, it's not just history. You know what I mean? I wouldn't be in this part of the world 
if you know someone didn't kidnap my ancestor in Africa or you know uh, stole the land from another ancestor here in Trinidad or kidnapped my ancestor in India, I wouldn't be here if not you know for the whole like you know enterprise um, colonization slash genocide that uh, Europeans um, perpetrated against you know a large part of the of the of the of the earth. So you know I. I think it's very important that um, you know because part of the part of the issues about growing up in the West is that it is very white supremacist and part of the indoctrination of that white supremacy and it's done upon everyone unless you know your parents are hip and they sent you to like a you know a school that really consciously breaks that cycle if you're going to a public school like I did um, like many of us most of us have then it's really hard to um, see yourself in the narrative. And that erasure, that invisibility, that, that's part of how the power structure, this white supremacy, is reproduced. And as an educator, and as a mother, and as a human being, I think it's really important to humanize the, our history, to really remember the humanity that's, that these stories are actually endowed with. Because it's one thing to, to be like, oh, you know, uh, Europeans came, and they discovered America, and they, you know, made the United States of America. Uh, that, that's one part of, you know, that, that's what we've been learning. But what about the human beings, you know? What about the human beings that were, that, that were met here? I mean, this is not just a, I mean, there, there are millions of human beings whose stories, you know, continue to be denied in this white supremacist system. And I just thought as a writer, you know, this is part of my, my, my mission is to, you know, speak for myself, speak for people who look for, like me, speak for, you know, all the regions of the world that has had this plague descend upon us, you know? Absolutely. And, and in fact, it seems to me that what you're doing in that moment and putting yourself on the beach as opposed to on the ships and putting yourself in the position of the colonized as rather than the colonizer, I mean, it really does seem to kind of play into what is, you know, uh, right in the title. That is a decolonial process, a, right. a, a process of decolonizing one's mind. And it seems to me that that process of decolonization is what you've been going through for mm. many, many years. But at the same time, the book is a document, uh, uh, you know, uh, sort of a historical document of decolonization that you're sort of gifting to your children. Right, exactly. Absolutely. The world. Absolutely. I mean, if anyone... You know, I really, especially because, you know, when I wrote it, I was, um, you know, I'm traveling right now, but I'm usually based in Copenhagen, and I, I worked as an educator there, and most of my students come from uh, many different parts of the world, and um, I just, it's really important that uh, we break through this, uh, we pierce this veil of whiteness, and we really open up the narratives to include all of the, as many, you know, I mean, my whole vision is flood the world with your stories. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think everyone should tell their stories. Everyone should get into their lineages. I mean, flood it, because that is, for me, the most, uh, the, the strongest motivator, the, the strongest force in the world is story. That's why Hollywood is worth so much money. You know, that's why we, so many people spend so much time in front of the television. That's why people read books, you know, but that ancient rite, that ritual has been co-opted and, you know, many of us uh, don't see ourselves 
as having the ability to tell stories. And I really think that um, we all need to tell our stories. No doubt about it. And there's there's more stories to tell than there are time enough to tell them. Um, But uh, I do want to point something else out from the book. And maybe this is a little bit of bias on my part. But being uh, being somebody who lived many years in Brooklyn, I couldn't help but uh, take note of the chapter entitled Brooklyn is War. Mm. And and, uh, when I when I first read that in the table of contents, I had to fight the urge to skip right to that chapter. (laughs) Um, But when I finally did get to it, something occurred to me. And that is that the war that I I was thinking of when I read the title of that chapter is only kind of half of the story that is really mm. contained in there because in essence what you're describing is sort of a multi-front war in mm. Brooklyn because Brooklyn for anybody who doesn't know the vibe of Brooklyn and New York City living day to day in New York City is like a war you mm. gotta fight with people on the subway to get a spot you gotta carry your groceries up seven million flights of stairs <laughs> and carry them 700 blocks or whatever it might be it it it, it does kind of take a sort of physical toll and many mm. people don't like to live in New York for that reason. But in that chapter, it becomes really evident quite quickly that the kind of war you're talking about is also a very personal one, one that takes place at home, one mm. that takes place behind closed doors. So can you can you explain a little bit about the, the war metaphor in uh, vis-a-vis Brooklyn and your own uh, experiences growing up and how that informs a lot of these ideas in the book? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, Brooklyn. I mean, I, when I was growing up in Brooklyn, it was like I left Brooklyn like right before it got really bad. But up until that time, it was getting it was pretty bad. There were like race wars, you know, at my 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 brother and sister's junior high school. You know, kids were now starting to get locked up at Rikers. Um, yeah, we you know we were now starting to you know just hearing about you know girls sixteen you know having babies, uh, shootouts, you know. So that was kind of like, you know, all start bubbling up and starting to kind of happen a little bit with a little bit more frequency. But um, for me, you know, I felt uh, very unsafe um, and my brother and sister as well, three of us at home, actually, because my father was very, um, you know, I would say he was probably mentally ill, but was never diagnosed. So uh, we grew up, you know, being very we never knew when he was going to lose it and when he lost it, it was just, it would just get very abusive and it was very toxic. It was like, it was really like, you know, um, like he got possessed, you know, like he wasn't there. We couldn't reach him. He was, it was like totally like there was a, another being, uh, that visited the household. And, um, and I think that scenario that I'm painting for you and the listeners, I think we need to really understand how common this is, you know, I think, you know, a lot of people don't realize that, um, you know, what we call domestic abuse, it's very, very common, you know, there's a, there, there are a lot of situations where children, uh, too many <laughs> situations where children are actually growing up in these extremely unsafe and unstable environments. Um, and, and to a large extent, it is absolutely the responsibility of the parents for sure, to create a safe home for their children. Um, Yet, on the other hand, I really understood why my father, like even at a young age, I really understood why he just 
you know, why he was falling apart, basically, you know, whether it was because, you know, like my, like I have this thing like architecture, I think I write it in the book, architecture determines behavior. And I think this whole idea about like, you know, a whole family living in an apartment, I think that, it, it, you know, that could push someone over the edge, especially if you're used to, you know, if you're from the Caribbean and you're used to being outside, you know, you have a lot of people who are having this very, you know, radical shift in uh, living, going from, you know, being outside all the time than being in, you know, in, in some small apartment in Brooklyn, for example, and, you know, or not being able to, to get a job and not being able to provide for your family. I mean, these are all things that break people, you know? So, um, yeah, so we were, so, so that was, you know, the, the war that, um, I, I felt that I was born into, you know, with this battlefield that was my home. And, and, um, like I said, you know, we didn't meet, uh, my siblings and myself, we didn't, we didn't grow up uh, feeling, you know, safe. My sister, um, actually she, I was the youngest, so I didn't really, I didn't understand a lot what was going on, but my brother and sister, they're like six or seven years older than I am. So they, they, they knew they were like, t they were conscious about everything. So, you know, my sister said to me the other day, she's like, yeah, Leslie, there were many nights where I didn't, I, I, I couldn't fall asleep because I was afraid that he would come and kill us. Like, you know, that, that was the type of environment that I grew up in. And then what I did was, uh, when I went to school, I, um, acted out, what you know I, I couldn't you know my dad got angry with me I got I was very submissive around my dad you know but I remember very consciously being like I seeing my dad and seeing my mom seeing their dynamic and I remember very consciously when I was a kid being like all right I'm gonna be the dad in in, in my life you know what I mean like I'm not gonna be like my mom because my mom was very you know she, she just she took it you know so what I would do is I would go to school and then I would be this bully you know <laughs> I would be my dad and I would get into fights and I would be like, you know, I mean, I ended up getting kicked out of school because I, I, I took a razor blade to school. You know, I was really this out of control, you know, nine, 10 year old kid. That's how young I was. And I'm saying all of this because, you know, again, when we look at the children in our societies, when we look at, you know, the, the rate of runway, runaways, all of this stuff, you know, we really need to start connecting the dots and understanding. You know, if you, if you see, you know, like a, a lot of women, a lot of men and women who end up in prostitution or, or, or sex workers, a lot of them, you know, and I'm not saying, you know, I'm not making a judgment here, but a lot were sexually, you know, molested or abused when they were a child. I mean, so I'm just saying, like, we need to be aware that you know and I don't want to say it's the same thing as growing up in Iraq god forbid where you know the U.S. is bombing the shit of my town like I also don't mean to trivialize that experience either you know I'm not trying to do that I'm just trying to say for me with no other uh experience of war and just but just thinking that okay uh, I, I might, my dad just tried to kill my mom or the cops are here again, or, you know, I'm being waken up at the middle of the night and, you know, my mom is dressing us to sneak out, running away from my dad. I mean, all this sort of stuff where as a child, you know, you just don't have a safe space. And the one safe space that you do have, which ends up being school, I love school because when I went to school, I had structure, I felt a relative amount of safety. Then, as you read in the book, you know, I, I have something that alters that feeling of safety. So just as a child feeling, you know, and there are many children who are growing up in the, in this, uh, in the actual wars and in these wars that we create in our capitalist, highly racist, patriarchal societies.
Another interesting theme in this book that I kept returning to, and it, it kind of cropped up a number of times, and to be honest with you, I had to put the book down and really think about it a little bit, is the issue, is the idea of uh, skin. Because skin really does seem to play a very important role in this book. I mean, you make numerous references to skin mm. and the skin color of your mm. son, and in in the you know for to to paraphrase your book, you know the story written upon his skin, mm. and 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 that he must be mindful and conscious of that. And at the same time, you talk a lot throughout the book about land mm. and about the importance of land. And mm. I couldn't help but think of these sort of metaphorical relationship between the skin of an individual mm. and the land of the planet Earth mm, and, and, mm. and the story that's kind of written on both of them. Can you talk a little bit about that that sort of metaphor? And I mean, I don't even know if that was something that you were doing consciously or if that just kind of came through on an unconscious level, but that's where my mind went. Yeah, well, I, I didn't really think about what you just said, like the skin, like the Earth being the skin of the Earth and, and skin, but I w was thinking about other things for sure. So thank you for that. Um, for me, I just, you know, I was really, ever since I was a child, I always thought that, um, you know, the idea of owning land was really crazy. I was like, how can people own land? Like, 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 you know, like, how can we pay for, how can people own water? Like, stuff like that. It's just like, it just really boggles my mind. Um, so I just really wanted to kind of understand, like, where, um, where it came from, like this whole idea of private property and, you know, as being in a brown, uh, you know, being in, in black and brown skin, it's like, so I have a particular history in terms of like ownership, right? And people, like my particular history in terms of private property, right? And then I was like, okay, well, what's up with this whole thing about like land and owning land? And then you look into the history of that and then you say, okay, you see like in England, you know, one day the king is just like, okay, go out and tell me how much land, what I have on that land, da, da, da. And then they, they, you know, the book is called the Doomsday Book, you know what I mean? Because that was the first time the king knew what his subject, well, knew who his subjects were and what his subjects had, so then, of course, he could tax it, you know? So for me, you know, this relationship or non-relationship that we have with the land has everything to do with our freedom because, you know, as you, you know, for me, especially as a black person, being rooted in the Americas, you know, the whole idea of land ownership, and, and particularly, I think a lot about African Americans, you know, how... how um, you know, I have a friend, the activist, uh, Kelly Curry, and she talks about how African-Americans have been traumatized from uh, the earth, you know, have been like really their relationship to the earth for many, you know, not all, but, you know, for many, you know, just through the through share through slavery, through sharecropping, which was just like, you know, this crazy ass system where you work the land, but you didn't have anything to show for it, you know. So this whole idea that many of us have that, OK, that success is actually moving away from the land um, and, you know, I guess coming into a city or, or, you know, having an office job and da, da, da. But whereas, you know, if you look at it very closely, you're still kind of enslaved to a system in some way, shape or form. So for me, the whole thing with the skin and the earth, it's really about, you know, looking at these concepts of like private property, looking at these concepts of what it means to be free. At the end of the day, if I have some sun and some fresh water and I can grow my own food, you know, that's freedom to me. <laughs> so, I mean, so these are all things that, I, you know, all these 
this is what I'm thinking about when I'm when I'm uh, you know talking about that and, and for my son you know just uh, you know also I mean he is you know there's also because you know racism is not you know no pun intended like it's not just it's not this black and white situation we all also as black and brown people need to talk about how we have internalized this racism that we've inherited and how we act that out um, amongst each other so my son you know a lot of people would not read my son as being black, you know what I mean? Like he he passes. They know he's mixed, but they but you know they they would never think, you know, that, you know, okay, his mom identifies as black in Europe, you know, because they have all these other notions of what black is, et cetera. So, um, you know, so so he, you know, just also his understanding, his privilege in um in terms of like where he is uh, in in the world, and and also understanding um, you know his particular lineage and 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 what it has meant, what it means for me, and what it means for him, and and also in a larger context, you know, for the world. Yeah, and that really resonates with me because I you know I I, I have a child and my wife is black, and so my child has this mixed uh, background, and he is light enough to where he will benefit from some level of privilege. But at the same time, I'm also conscious of the fact that there will likely come times in his life where he's going to be on the receiving end as well. Absolutely. And and, and this sort of. Um, I don't know, I guess you could say kind of juxtaposition between those two. For me, as somebody who's not a person of color, mm-hmm. it is it is it is really uh rewarding to read a book like yours and to engage with a lot of these issues because they mm-hmm. do have an application to my own personal life. Absolutely. And I'm I'm really happy to hear that because again, you know, when you said the title, I think you had asked me something earlier, I believe, about the title and what I, you know, in terms of like who I saw reading it, I really felt like a very strong connection to people who had black children, particularly black mothers, you know what I mean? And particularly, you know, in Europe, because, you know, raising a black child in Europe, that is a really challenging task. (laughs) So I'm happy to hear that you, um, that it resonates with you, because that's exactly one of the reasons why I wrote it. Oh, it most certainly did. And um, I really do recommend that. Uh, and and really, it's not only, you know, it's not only a racial thing. Even if you're even if you have a child who is not of mixed background, it just engaging with a lot of these issues, I think, is is really worthwhile because you start to you start to question a lot of uh, your own assumptions about uh, not not just yourself, but really how your children perceive you. And that's something else that kind of comes through the book is that you're not just kind of, you know, passing something down, you know, bequeathing it to your son, as mm. it were. You're almost engaging in a dialogue with him. And I think that really enriches the experience of the book because it does almost feel somewhat dialectical. Excellent. I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> So tell us just uh, in closing, uh, where can people get your book? Is there anywhere other than Amazon or do we just need to bow down to the corporate overlord and just buy it from Amazon? <laughs> yeah, Amazon owns our asses. Okay, it's available, the publisher's Repeater Books, and it's available in Europe. It's available worldwide. 
and the best way you can you can get it and support your local bookstore is actually just order it from your bookstore. If they don't have it, you can call and ask for the title or go there and ask for the title. And if they don't have it, they'll order it for you. So you do you you can go the Amazon route if that's what you want to do, but you can also like uh, you know if you want to support bookstores, go to your bookstore, ask for it, and if they don't have it, they'll order it for you. The book, Decolonial Daughter, Letters from a Black Woman to Her European Son. Leslie Ann Brown is the author. Thanks for coming on the show, Leslie. Really had a lot of fun. Thanks a lot, Eric. Listeners, thank you as always, and we'll chat again real soon. <laughs>